Please turn your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 34. If you're visiting with us this morning, we've been working our way through the book of Genesis, and we find ourselves in chapter 34 this morning. Last time we were together in the book of Genesis, we saw that Jacob had camped before the city of Shechem and bought a piece of land from the sons of Hamor where he built an altar to the Lord. And that's where I want to pick it up this morning, and then we're going to be looking at the 34th chapter together. So we'll be starting in verse 18, actually, of the previous chapter, chapter 33 in verse 18, to give us that introduction into chapter 34. This is the Word of God. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padanaram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel, or the God, the God of Israel. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. The young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. Behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. 
Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of the city because they had defiled out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? So far the reading of God's unholy word. May add his blessing to it this morning to help us understand it, to apply it to our lives. Your people of God, James Boyce writes about this text. We come to a chapter which records such disgraceful deeds, it's difficult to know how to comment or preach on it. He notes that some commentators skip over this chapter in their commentaries on Genesis. One says this, we may well wonder if a man is exercising proper discernment if he decides to preach from this text. Well, maybe we ought to just skip right over this and maybe even just take it out so we don't have to meet it ever. Now, we can't do that, can we? We know that the Scriptures state that all Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that we might be thoroughly equipped to do the good work that God has for us. So this morning, that's what we intend to do. It doesn't, these words in 2 Timothy 3 that I just quoted don't mean that every passage is equally easy to preach on or equally easy for us to absorb, to listen to. But we don't turn away from those passages of Scripture which expose the depravity of man, for no man is the hero of the Bible. Who's the hero of the Bible, children? Who's the hero? The triune God is the hero of the Bible. He's the one who delivers us from ourselves, from our sin. Why Why am I looking at this text this morning? Well, it's the next passage In God's holy word, as we look at it, and God is to be our glory and boast, and I trust that today we'll see how he will become more so our glory and our boast as we look at this dark, disturbing passage. When we were last in Genesis together, we saw that Jacob and Esau had been reconciled, and we thought, well, maybe things are going to turn around. Maybe things are going to get better. Jacob and Esau will come together. They'll share their flocks and their herds, and their families will get along, and they'll have wondrous family reunions, and, and they'll just enjoy being together, and everything will end happily. Well, what we see is that it doesn't go that way. Ian Duguid comments, about us. He says, real people like us 
are a mass of complex emotions and desires, and the narratives of our lives are, rather, are rarely simple and smooth. So even when we, we, we appear to be moving in the right direction, things appear to be improving, then our hearts and our minds start to, to, to think and act according to our, to our nature, and the path is not always that smooth. Jacob moves away from Esau, which is, as we saw last time, perhaps a wise move on his part, but there is... Still work to be done. We saw last time in the sermon that Jacob was a work in progress, though he had all the promises from God that God would deliver him and God would bring him to the place that he had promised him. Jacob was still trying to make his own plans and to control his life, to dictate how things would go. Well, the first question we want to look at this morning is where is Jacob? Where is Jacob? Well, we see that he's in Canaan. We think, well, again, hey, that's good. That's where he's supposed to go back to. But he's not where the Lord wanted him to be. Remember what happened in chapter 28 where uh, God comes to Jacob there at Bethel and promises to him that he would bring him back to this place and he would be his God. Well, here is Jacob stopping up short of where God would have him to be. Remember what his reaction was to God speaking to him there at Bethel. He, he said, surely the Lord is in this place. Therefore, he named it the house of God, Bethel. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Well, why wouldn't someone want to go back there where God is? Well, not so fast. Don't, don't necessarily draw that conclusion because we're all a little bit like Jacob he stops up short. He doesn't really want to be walking so nearly to God because it, it, might, it might require more than he's willing to give. And isn't that true for us? We hear God's word, but do we always want to be walking closely with him? Do we always walk closely with him? We know what the word teaches, but maybe it's, it's just not what we want. It's not the way we want to go. We say, well, yeah, I'll, eventually I'll get there, or, or yeah, I, that's right and good, but later. I'll, I'll do that later. And as it's been said to me many times, and I heard another minister use it over the years, delayed obedience is disobedience. My children have heard that a time or two. I don't know, children, if you've heard that, but say, well, I'm going to obey. I just, not right now. Well, delayed obedience is disobedience. It's not doing what you are called to do. Jacob goes halfway. He's in the land. He even sets up an altar. He says, God is the God of Israel. He sets up an altar. He acts religiously. He goes through the motions, we might say, but he's not fully submitting to God. That, I think, describes all of our lives. We know that relationship with God matters. We do religious things, but we stop short of drawing near to God, listening to Him and responding fully to Him. Those words of the psalmist are wonderful, but they're also frightening. Search me, O God, and know me. See if there are any, any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Do we pray that and do we really mean it? <laughs> Search me, know me, and lead me. Or do we say, well later, or, or don't look too close. Don't look at what I'm about to do. 
Where's Jacob? There's that question again. Well, he's in Canaan, but let's think about that now as it pertains to this passage as we come into chapter 24. Where's Jacob when Dinah goes off to the city? We hear nothing about uh, uh, Jacob being there. Dinah is the daughter of Jacob. We, it's made very clear there's a close connection. She is the daughter of Leah whom she had born to Jacob. But you remember, what does the Scripture say about Leah in Jacob's eyes? It was the wife he did not love. And we get the impression here that the daughter was also just kind of an afterthought. Well, Dinah's just doing whatever Dinah wants to do. Jacob's nowhere around. And Dinah goes, went out to see the women of the land, verse 1 tells us. Was, was this innocent curiosity or as the words imply elsewhere when they're used in the Bible, the description of one who's seeking to get out from under a watchful eye, going out, going away. Dinah may have had no evil motives here, not looking for anything, but going to the women of the city and trying to find out how they saw things. What was their perspective rather than rather than remaining with the covenant people, and she goes unprotected. She goes there without anyone, and what does she find? Well, I'm convinced that the narrator condenses the event here because it seems too quick for this to happen as it is recorded here. She goes, she went to see the women of the land, and when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Well, I think that there's a condensing of what had happened. She had gone and she was in the city and Shechem starts to take notice of her and, oh, takes notice of her and more and more. And why is she being taken notice of? We don't know, but that phrase, the women of the land, how does one become noticed by a, a man? Well, by looking as though one was looking for a man. She learns the ways of the women of the city, and she's noticed by the prince of the city. She's likely not dressed modestly, for Shechem takes notice. He seizes her and lays with her and humiliates her. In all of this, we hear nothing of Jacob. Where's Jacob? We're told... Jacob hears after the fact that Shechem had defiled his daughter, verse 5, his daughter. That word is said again and again, his daughter, his daughter, his daughter, the one whom he should have been protecting. And nothing more is said of this. Jacob doesn't say a word. In fact, it says he held his peace. Jacob heard about this, but he held his peace because the sons were in the field, in the fields, and he figured, I'll let them take care of it when they return. That seems to be what's implied in the text, that they were going to care more for her honor than her own father. Well, fathers, uh, there's application here of responsibility to protect your daughters, to care for your children, to be those who want to know where they're going, who they're with, and what they're doing when they're there. I know children don't like that very much, but that's how God intends it, to protect 
Jacob's failure, failure to protect was a grievous sin. Where are they going? What are they wearing? What kind of an appearance are they presenting? What kind of attention are they attracting by what they wear? Is there an emphasis that their beauty is to be upon godliness? Their beauty is their godliness. Girls, what are you kind of attention are you looking for by what you wear? Are you looking for the men of the city? Are you looking for one who will lead you to love the Lord or one who tells you he will love you because of how beautiful you are outwardly? You're going to be looking for one who encourages you to walk in the Lord, one who speaks that way and leads you, wants to learn about the Lord and to lead you in that way. Does that sound boring? Does that sound super spiritual? That might be because we've lost our way in what God has to say to us. First Peter chapter 3, Peter talks about this and he says that that beauty that we're to be developing, that we're to be uh, carrying out is this, do not let your adorning, your beauty be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. It doesn't mean one has to look plain, but... Focus is upon inner beauty. The focus is upon godliness, and the focus is upon seeking out, praying for one who will lead in the ways of the Lord with Christ at the center, looking for a man who will treasure such godliness and such help in living for the Lord. That's not what defines Shechem's love for Dinah. But before we get to that, young men, how do you relate to young women? Are you only looking at the outward appearance? Are you reflecting upon just the act, the physical act that we see here? Maybe you say, well, it's only I can do it on the computer and it's fine. No one will see. No one will know. But is that going to develop in you a Christ-likeness? Lay down your life for one with whom you will spend your life. You're developing self-control, asking God for that, praying for that, looking at the passages in Scripture which teach that. Private sin, as we see here, will have public consequence. It will affect the way you relate to others. It will affect your spiritual growth. Looking at those things in private, it doesn't help you lead. It leads you to lust. Well, we read Shechem loved Dinah. He told his father, get me this girl. He wanted the relationship to be approved by Dinah's father. What we do find out, though, from later in the passage is this, that he had taken her into his home already. Verse 26, when, the brothers, when Dinah's brothers go to the city of Shechem, what do they have to do? They have to go and rescue Dinah from Shechem's house. He had taken her captive, we don't know, but she's there, and the brothers have to 
go and get her. Things are definitely out of line, and Shechem thinks that he has the posture, the position to do the deal-making. What we don't read in Shechem is that he wants to lead Dinah to love the Lord, to respect her parents. He has no love for the Lord or any interest in learning about the Lord. Shechem's father comes to Jacob to set up the wedding, verse uh, 5 excuse me, verse 6, and Jacob still hasn't said anything. He should have said, this is not right. He had plenty of, of witness, plenty of testimony. You could see Abraham's comment, don't get, a son, don't get a wife for my son Isaac from here, but go back to the land. He could have thought back to Rebekah who, when Rebekah said, no, you must go away from here, Jacob, and not get a, a wife from here. And Isaac said, yes, you must not marry among the Canaanite women. You must not take a wife from here. All of those examples are there. Jacob should have remembered and spoke up in a long line of instruction and examples indicating that marriage to an unbeliever is not acceptable among the people of God. Well, Hamor ends up speaking to Dinah's brothers, for they are the ones who are offended by this act. Verse 7 says this, The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry. They were going to uphold their, their sister's honor. And it says here, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. You note one thing here, God's name is not mentioned in this passage, but the commands of God are still very clear. This must not be done. This is an outrageous thing. Sex outside of marriage is an outrageous thing and should not be committed by God's People. It's a gritty passage to be sure. How does the minister connect it to baptism on a baptism Sunday? Well, it shows us this, doesn't it? Every one of us needs to be washed. Every one of us needs to be cleansed. Why do I say it that way? Because there's not a single person in this passage that looks good. No one. Not the father, not the brothers, as we'll see in a few months, not the people of Shechem, not the, the, the father of Shechem, none of it. Now, Kurt and Laura, you're responsible to teach your children all that the Lord has taught in His Word, and this is, this is part of it, relationships. Who are, they, who are they relating to? What does marriage look like? You're to protect them. From the, false, from the lies that are out in the culture today, that this is love or that's love. What is love? Well, it, all, as we're going to hear tonight, all of the words that find definition, their true definition in God's Word. That's where we return, not what's being said here or there, what's being accepted now. You may not keep a CD of this sermon for Theodore's baby book, and that's okay. But you will be called to teach to instruct in these matters. And what you show is, what you reveal in your own lives is that they need God and you need God to be forgiven of sin. We need His grace. We need His mercy. Well, let's continue then in this. Will the line of God's people continue? That's the next question we look at this morning. How do Simeon and Levi, uh, Dinah's brothers, respond to Shechem's request? 
Do they urge Shechem to consider what marriage is according to God's commands? Do they, do they say, well, we want to talk to you about the Lord. We want, to, we want you to understand that we're a, we're a family committed to the Lord, and, and, and really this is, uh, uh, this is not unforgivable, but we have a problem here. We don't think you understand the relationship and what it is supposed to reflect. Is that what they do? No, they don't, do they? They make a plan to avenge this shame carried out against their sister. They use the sacred rite of circumcision, which, pointed, which points to something and is to teach something, that we are to be consecrated to God and cut off from sin, or we will be cut off from God and from life. That's what it's supposed to teach. They use this as a means to set up these people for destruction. One wonders about the spiritual state of Jacob's sons at this point in their life. They seem to look at circumcision as merely an outward act, the way they talk about it. Now, we say it's, they were being deceitful, so maybe they knew and their sin wasn't so much in their failure to understand circumcision as it was to, to say, well, we want to get even with these individuals. We don't know for sure, but we need to ask, was all that this was simply a mark? Was this just simply a sign that they said, well, it's nothing. You need to become like us, so get circumcised. Have the sign administered. Well, that's supposed to point to something much deeper, isn't it? The spiritual reality, the spiritual truth, the spiritual understanding that we are set apart to God. When one has to wonder, was there any spiritual reality in their, the spiritual reality of this sign in their lives? This exchange made me think of words Paul uses. Jump to the New Testament for a moment with me in Acts chapter 26. What does Paul say when he's before Agrippa? He's standing there in chains. He's he's going to gain nothing by his testimony for Christ, but he's not ashamed of Christ. And he says to Agrippa, Oh, that you would become like me except for these chains. Oh, that you would become like me with a relationship with the Lord, bound before you but free before God. What a different way of understanding that phrase. Oh, that you would become like me, Acts 26, verse 29. Not the attitude that we see in the sons of Jacob here. They want revenge. This doesn't make them look good. Their plans are deceptive. Their actions are cruel. For the sin of one man, they will kill all the men of the city. I want us to remember something. What did God say to Abraham when he called him? He said, you're going to be a blessing to the nations. Remember that? Going to be a blessing to the nations. Genesis 12, Genesis 18, Genesis 22. You're going to be a blessing to the nations. And here are Abraham's descendants. Are they being a blessing to the nations? No, they're being a curse to the nations. They're coming and they're acting cruelly among the nations, taking judgment into their own hands and wiping out a city. And their actions deserved severe judgment from God. The line of God's people, these whom God had called, they deserve judgment. And Jacob's afraid of the, what's going to happen, right? But what's he afraid about? Is he afraid of what God's going to do? He's not, is he? Look at verse 30 for a moment. What does he say to his son, Simeon and Levi? He says, you've brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Look what you've done. You've made us a stench before the people. 
He's afraid, fearful. Fear and doubt still linger in Jacob, as, as, as we've seen, but he's not afraid of what God might do. He doesn't intercede for his sons. What did Job do when he was offering sacrifices? He would offer sacrifices for his sons. Perhaps they've done something to offend the Lord. I will offer sacrifice on their behalf. He doesn't do that. Still something not fully developed in Jacob yet. Instead, he curses their anger. His last words are found in chapter 49 of Genesis where he's speaking to his sons on his deathbed. Listen to what Genesis 49 says, verses 5 to 7. He says this of Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. Their wrath was cruel. Their actions were severe. It was not in their place to carry out judgment. It was not in their place. God is the one who carries out judgment And he judges justly. He shows grace and mercy. But in this passage, we also see what happens to those who do not walk in his way, who are not a part of his covenant people, who are not looking to him, but rebelling against him. That must not be missed. That's the sober reality. They will be judged. But today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when we can speak of God offering forgiveness to all those who confess their sins, repent of their sins, and humble themselves before the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me for my sins and welcome me into your family that I might become like them, objects of your mercy and grace. Well, the citizens of Shechem don't come off looking good in this passage either. They're Persuaded to be circumcised, to be sure, but they really want Jacob's assets. That's their focus. That's how it's sold to them. Verse 23, won't their livestock, their property, and their animals become ours? Let's just agree with them. Let's just go along so that we can get their assets. Well, that's, it, that's not what it means to join the household of God. <laughs> to say, well, I'm going to just join outwardly and then I'll get the blessings. What I really want God for is all the material blessings that I see His people experiencing. No. God sees when we merely connect with His people for material advantage. He knows. Well, the brothers come down upon Shechem killing all the men and they plunder the city. They not only kill the men, they plunder the city. Not a good picture and they When Jacob comes to them and tries to speak to them, albeit weakly and more concerned about his future and his his numbers, they try to take the moral high ground and they say, well, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? I mean, don't, weren't we right to, to, to do this? Now, there is certainly a sin committed here, but the injustice of The people of the sons, rather, are before us. Their actions were unjust and far above what they were called to. They should have 
worked through this in a, in a way that would have brought honor and glory to God and leaned into him and sought favor for these individuals that they might be brought near. Well, it's impossible to talk about good guys and bad guys in this passage. No one comes out looking good. Reminds us that we all need the cleansing blood of Jesus to be washed of our sins. All our acts are imperfect, even those that seemingly take the moral high ground. Our righteous indignation can very often come off as, well, at least I'm not like them. I don't need what they need. And right then we, we find ourselves guilty of believing that we're saved because we're so good. That we don't need God's grace and mercy. All our acts are stained with sin. Well, perhaps you're listening to this sermon this morning and thinking, wow, this is harsh. This is, this is heavy. And this is so disturbing. Well, this is the Word of God. <laughs> And, and, part of, and part of the reason we believe the Word of God to be inspired and His Word is, who would write this if they're trying to make themselves look good? What, what man would write this to make themselves look good? Genesis was written, you remember, for the people of God in the wilderness. No one, not even the priestly line of Levi, comes out looking good in this passage God sets before us our sin. Then he says this to us, Truly your sins are many, they're as scarlet. But come, let us reason together. Let us, let us understand my way of salvation. That in the Lord Jesus Christ, my Son, your sins can be washed. That you might be made white as snow. In Him, your sins can be forgiven. I want you to come near. I want you to arrive in that land of promise that I have for you. And this is the way. Come near. Don't stop short of where I want to bring you. Listen to me and find peace and rest. Well, then the last question this morning that we seek to answer, where are you? Are you walking with the Lord? Are you drawing near to the Lord? Or are you saying, well, those things in private, they won't be seen. They're not known. As long as I look good here in this place, then everything's fine. I don't have anything to confess. No one's convicted me of anything. No one's said anything to me. Well, the Lord knows. And He says, turn from your sin and your wickedness. Walk in My way. Humble yourselves and I will lift you up. I will cleanse you of your sins and sanctify you you. The line of God's people will not end, and that's not because the people of God are so good and holy as we see in this passage, but because God is faithful. He sent His own Son who bore the curse that we deserved so that in Him we might be set free from that curse. He was cut off only to rise again that we might have that certain hope that in the Lord we belong to Him. We trust in Him. What, is the, what did the psalmist say when he is experiencing that grief and they're taunting him? 
It says there, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. That is where we turn. We turn to the Lord, for he is the one who will rescue, the one who will deliver. Not a single person looks good in this story. But as we will see in chapter 35, Lord willing, next week, God comes again to Jacob, and Jacob again receives that name Israel. You have struggled with God. You have come to me, and I promise that I will be with you. He's praying, Lord, how do we see our way clear of all of this? How do we come to that land of rest when all of this is a part of our record? And God says, I can forgive. Song that I like by David Ward. Let me quote the lyrics to you. There is no sin that I have done that has such height and breadth. It can't be washed in Jesus' blood or covered by his death. There is no spot that still remains, no cause to hide my face. For he has stooped to wash me clean and covered me with grace. There is no wrath that I will know, nor wormwood and no gall, for though such wounds and grief I earned, my Savior bore them all. There is no work that I must add to stand before his throne. I only plead his life and death sufficient on their own. There is no love that I desire but Jesus' warm embrace. While now I know his love by faith, I long to see his face. There is no song that I will sing, no melody but this, that my beloved, he is mine, for he has made me his. People of God, God will bring you home as you trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. As we carry on in this journey, let us keep our eyes fixed upon the author and perfect of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we see him, as we see his way, as we see his desire to do the Father's will, may we then also desire to live for our Father, drawing near and doing what is pleasing to him. For his commands are life and peace. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you aware of our sin, of our need. Come to you in the midst of this difficult passage, and we see tremendous need in everyone, as is true for us. We are all needy, needing your grace and your mercy, pleading the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. O Lord, hear us as he intercedes for us. Comfort us by your Spirit And lead us in that way everlasting, we pray in his name. Amen.